going to talk to them about the legacy of the church. He's going to talk to them about the legacy of the church as well as the legacy of the individual Christian. You think about Mike Gundy. He may be known as a 16-year head coach of the OSU Cowboys. He may be known as a man that has gone 134 and 66 in his tenure there. He may be known as a man that led his team this year to beat both Kansas State and Iowa State. Two teams that others have had struggles with this year. See, I I can't help it. But, but, But it doesn't matter. Because his legacy today is defined by last night. And what I think it's important for us to realize is that you today are living a legacy. We today as a church are living a legacy. Now there's a typo in your notes, but I'm going to correct it here this morning. And here's just this main thought that I want us to think about together. Our lives today influence our legacies tomorrow. Not R-A-R-E, but it should be O-U-R. Our lives today influence our legacies tomorrow. So as we are living today, both individually and corporately as a church, we are leaving, we are living a legacy. And so Paul's going to come in here and he's really going to offer a prayer. He's going to offer this prayer right in here in verse 14 down through verse 21 in Ephesians chapter 3. He talks, he gives this prayer on behalf of the church, but as he's praying for the church in this written form, he's praying for the church's witness. He's praying for the church's testimony. He's praying for the legacy of the church. The reason why you and I are sitting here in 2020 reading this letter was because of the legacy of Paul and the legacy of Paul's ministry. We are the recipients and the benefactors of a legacy lived for God. So who's going to be talking about us in 1500 years if the Lord continues his tarry? Who's going to look back upon the legacy of your life or the legacy of this church and to be able to point to things that we as a church, or we as a people did that pointed other people to Christ. So Paul is going to come in in this passage, and he's going to pray. Pray for the people. Pray for the church. Pray for the legacies the church is leaving and living before other people. I'm going to start in verse 14. We're going to read down through verse 21 for the sake of context, but then I want to back up and I just want to walk you through four different legacies that I think Paul is encouraging us as a church and four different legacies that I think that Paul is calling us personally to endeavor to leave to those that are coming after us. Leave to those that are around us. Leave to the community in which God has put us in today. So starting at verse 14 it says this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
May God add understanding and application to his word this morning. Paul is praying for this church. He's praying for these individuals. And he's praying primarily for the witness, the testimony, but the legacy of the church. There's some things here that I want you to think about with me over these next few moments that Paul is praying for. And the first thing I want you to get is that Paul is praying for their power in the spirit. If you look back up there in verse 14, he says, I'm bowing my knees. I'm praying to the Father from whom, verse 15, every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with through with power through his spirit. Paul's desire is for the church and for the individual to have power in the spirit of God. A legacy that we can leave as a church or as an individual to the people around us is that they can look and say they had a power, a power that was only from God. See, we're living in a day and age which power is often defined in the culture as money, or titles, or possessions, or experiences, or fame, or fortune. But the kind of power that Paul is talking about, he is talking about the, the spiritual power that is unexplainable. He's talking about that spiritual power that can only be explained through God. It's that same spiritual power that fell in Acts chapter 2 there at Pentecost when Peter gets up and he starts to preach. 3,000 people we're saved. It's the same spiritual power that came upon Peter and John as the lame beggar was healed in Acts chapter 3. And Peter once again gets up and he preaches. 5,000 people are saved. It's the same kind of power that in Acts chapter 4 when you see the church comes together and they praise and it says there was a great earthquake and the place in which they were were shaken. Why were they shaken? They were shaken because the power of the church in prayer can you imagine us getting together and having a time of prayer and this whole building begins to shake? Not because of tectonic plates, not because of some uh, atomic uh, boom, not because of something external, but because of the spiritual work and power inside the church. You know, it's a spiritual power that is unexplained. It's a, it, it's a spiritual power that even is inexhaustible. You think back to Acts chapter 12. Peter is in prison. And what does the church, what, is it, what does the Bible say the church did? The church prayed. And the church prayed. And what was the result of the prayers? Peter's asleep between two guards in prison, thinking he's going to be killed the next day, have his head cut off. And he's sitting there in the jail cell, in the prison, guarded on both sides, guarded at the doors, guarded at the gates. And the angel kicks Peter and says, get up and get dressed. Peter doesn't even realize what's going on. He gets up and he follows the angel. The angel leads him all the way outside. Finally, Peter comes to his own, recognizes what's going on. He heads to where the disciples are at, where the church is at, and is praying. He knocks on the door. And remember the story? The servant girl comes and she hears Peter's voice. She gets all excited. She leaves him outside. She runs back to the people and says, Ha ha, our prayers have been answered. Peter's here. And they're like, what are you talking about? They were so caught up in praying, they didn't even think that God may even answer the prayer right when they were praying. But it's that kind of spiritual power. Can you imagine what it would be like for the people to follow after us, or the people that come after us to be able to look at us and say, you know what, I don't know what it was, but I do know you can't explain it by money, possessions, fame, title, anything that the world holds had a special power, a power that only came through the Spirit of God. That trumps methodologies. That trumps the circus. That, that, that trumps the latest and greatest marketing tools. That, that, that trumps the, 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 the promotions. 
that, that, that trumps the appearances, that trumps the aesthetics, that trumps all the things that we can manufacture, the hype that we can build up, that trumps all of those things when people come and they realize that there is a special power in this place. So Paul is telling them, Paul is pleading with them. Paul, Paul is praying for them that they may be granted the strength with power through his spirit. What kind of a legacy would that be for us to leave for those that come after us? They may not say, well, he was smart. He knew a lot. He had all this going for him. They just say, you know what? He had a power of the spirit within him. That's not something that you can get at a university. That's, something that you, that's not something you can buy at Walmart. That's something that is developed in days and years in personal fellowship and relationship to God. So he talks about this power. But then he also he goes on there in verse 17 and he talks about this faith. A faith that follows. A faith that follows. You see in verse 17 Paul goes on and he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants to encourage them that when it comes to their witness, when it comes to their testimony, when it comes to their walk, when it comes to their attitude, he says, I want you to have the kind of faith that isn't personal, that isn't hidden, that isn't secretive, that isn't in the, in the dark places that nobody knows, isn't something that you get to the end of your life and somebody says something, you're like, I had no idea. It's one of those things that faith, that faith that follows after Jesus. It's the kind of faith in Matthew 4.19. It says, Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And he's sitting there looking at Matthew, the tax collector at the tax collector booth, when he says that back in Matthew 4 and 19. And you know what the first word in verse 20 is? Immediately. What it's saying there in verse, 19, or verse 20 is, is that when Jesus looks at Matthew, and it says other where in the Gospels having to do with the other disciples, but when he looks at them and says, follow me, it says Matthew immediately got up and followed after Jesus. Immediately. It wasn't like he decided. It wasn't like he took a minute. It wasn't like he said at the end of the day. It wasn't like he said, well, let me ha- ask my friends. He didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't uh, sit time and ponder about it. It said immediately he got up and followed after Jesus. Jesus. That kind of faith. So when Jesus says move, we move. That's the kind of faith that Paul says that we should have when it comes to our relationship with God. It's the kind of faith that prioritizes Jesus Christ. And we're living in a day and age, and I know that some of you may get hurt feelings about this, but we're living in a day and age that church comes after our schedules. Church comes after our hobbies. Church comes after everything else. There used to be a time and a day when the church calendar and the church schedule dictated the community calendar and the community schedule. And now we're living in a day and age that church has to work around everybody else. Once was a day. You didn't do things on Sunday. Once was a day. That people had the kind of reverence for church that they would go hunting on a different day. They would play ball on a different day. They would do their own personal things on a different day. They would hold Christ in the kind of reverence because they would say that that is the Lord's day. And there's a faith that prioritizes. I'm not going to be legalistic. I'm going to say, well, this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. But we can understand that if you're prioritizing the things of God over the things of or you're prioritizing the things of man over the things of God. And Paul's saying, I want you to have the kind of faith that doesn't follow a person, doesn't follow a 
group. It doesn't follow a man-made organization. It follows after Jesus. Not just a faith that prioritizes, he talks about in verse 17, having your uh, hearts through faith, but a faith that obeys. A faith that obeys. This faith in Jesus Christ. Why would you have faith in Jesus Christ if when Jesus Christ calls us to do something, we didn't do it? Can you imagine that? Oh, I believe that you are the Lord and Savior of my life. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you have died so that I can be forgiven of my sins. I believe that if I confess and I repent of my sins and I place you as the Lord of my life, I believe that you will then save me and you will then secure my place in heaven for an eternity. I believe that. But then when you tell me to do something, I'm going to take that in consideration. Is that really a faith? Or is that a fraud? Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are in the boat. Storm is raging. They look out, they think it's Jesus. Jesus says, yeah, it's me, Peter. Mouths off, kind of like me, mouths off. And he says, well, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, well, come on. If you look at the scripture there, the passage there, Peter gets out and he takes off walking on the water. I would have loved to have been there to see that first couple of steps. Can you imagine all the disciples sitting in the boat and they're waiting? Is he really going to step out? Is he not going to step out? I wonder if Peter kind of dipped down and did the whole little tippy toes in the water, kind of see if it was down or if he just jumped over like he was just jumping over a barbed wire fence. I wonder how he got out of the boat. But he gets out of the boat and he's walking over Jesus. And you remember what the scripture says? Remember what it says? It says, As he was walking, he was watching Jesus. And then when he got close to Jesus, he took his eyes off Jesus and he started looking at the winds and the storms and the waves. And he began to sink. And then he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus reached down his hand and he picks him up. Why did he begin to sink? Because he put his faith in the wrong place. As long as his faith was centered upon Christ, he was able to walk and do exactly what Christ had called him to do. And when he began to become distracted, when he began to look around, when he began to start to have doubt or start to have second thoughts, when he began to start to trust in himself or in his own opinion or in his own knowledge, he began to sink. And Peter, or Paul comes in here in this passage and he says, I want you to have the kind of faith that follows. Not the kind of faith that is explainable. Not the kind of faith that people say, oh, I get that. Not the kind of faith that people say, oh yeah, yeah, everybody does that. The kind of faith that follows after Jesus Christ. So if God tells you to do something, everybody else can think you're crazy. You do it anyways. If God says, I want you to go and do this. Everybody says, oh, that can't be happening. You do it anyways. The kind of faith that follows after Jesus Christ. May it be said of me or may it be said of us as a church that we're not so concerned with following the whims and the pleasures of this world. But may it be said of us that we follow Jesus Christ. May it be said of us that we had the kind of faith, not just that prioritizes, not just that obeys, but the faith, kind of faith that perseveres. Because if, if our faith is in a man, or if our faith is in an institution, or if our faith is in a program, or if our faith is in some type of an organization... And when that organization falters, when that organization fails, when that organization runs on hard times, our faith will be shattered. But if our faith is in Jesus Christ, our faith will never be misfounded. 
He says, have a faith that follows. But then he goes on, he goes on, and I, and I gotta speed up. He, he goes on and he talks about it in verse 20. <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 18. The last part of verse 17, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. And then he goes on in verse 18 and he talks about them having this ability to comprehend. He's talking about having the kind of love that comprehends not your love for one another, not one another's love for you, the kind of love that comprehends the love that Christ has for you. He says that there in verse 19, he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's talking about this idea that you have the ability that you have just a small little smidgen to be able to comprehend the love that Jesus Christ has for you. That'll wreck your brain. The kind of love that God has for us. See, we're used to defining love by our terminology. And our love is fickle. Our love is temporal. Our love is dependent. My love for things around us is all dependent upon what they do for me or what I think about them or how they make me feel or how I make them, make them feel. You have these people that are bandwagon type fans. Everybody's an OSU fan when they're 7 or 8 or 0. And then all of a sudden, well, not, maybe not Mr. Davis and Mrs. Davis, but, but everybody else. But, 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 then, but then they lose again, and there's like, oh, I knew they were going to lose. The same way happens with the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> they start out, and everybody, oh, everybody's a Dallas Cowboy fan. Let them lose three or four games, and nobody's a Dallas Cowboys fan. Everybody hates them. They have this bandwagon-type affinity, this bandwagon-type affection. And Paul says, you know what will rock your world more than anything else is thinking about the love that God has for you. You see, this love that Christ has for us, it is undeserved. You didn't do anything to deserve God's love for you. It is completely undeserved. <clears throat> That's why in verse 18, he talks about having the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth? What is the length? What is the height? What is the depth? He is talking about the entire scope of God's love for you. Just try to fathom how great God's love is for you. 10-year wedding anniversary, we go down and we're at Galveston. And it's March. Probably the worst time of the year you could go to the Gulf. But it's our 10-year anniversary. We get there. We had to get us a, a, a hotel room that's overlooking the Gulf so we could have that view of the water. And we get there and we open up those curtains and there it is, the Gulf. Which I realize that is just a little bitty, bitty, tiny spot of water in the whole scheme of things but I'm going to tell you when I'm looking out there I don't see any more ground anywhere and it's just out there and I'm looking and I'm thinking man there's a ship way out there and there's another ship way out there there's things that you don't see till you start paying attention till you start studying and you start looking and you're just going really where does this thing end this thing keeps on going and going and going and going and going and that's the kind of idea that I think about when I talk about God's love for me it's that love that you can't even grasp you can't even fathom how much water is out there. You can't even fathom how far it goes. You can't even fathom how much is out there. You can't even fathom where it ends and where it starts. You can't even fathom how deep it is, how wide it is, how long it is. All you know that that is God's love for you. It is undeserved and it's unconditional. It's not dependent upon your love for him. I'm so grateful that God's love for me is not dependent upon my love for him. Because I realize I'm not the only person in the room that can be honest enough to say that there is times in my life that I haven't loved God the way I'm trying to love God today. And I, and I realize that I'm not the only person alive right now that, if to be honest, would say, there were times in my life that I don't know why God would even love me in the midst of those times. 
But because God's love is undeserved and God's love is unconditional, that means God's love is unending. It's unending. And that's what he talks about there in verse 17, 18, and 19. He's talking about, I want you to know the love of Christ. And this love of Christ, it surpasses your knowledge. It surpasses your knowledge because it fills you with the love of God. Think about it, to Romans chapter 8 and verse 38 and 39. It talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, talking about the whole love chapter. He gets towards the end and he says, but the greatest of these is love. He is talking about this idea that this love for God, it's not what compels us to initially love one another. This love for God is what saves us. This love of God is what transforms us. This love of God is what calls us to himself. This love of God is why we are able to love one another. It's because of God's love for us. We're living in a very divided time. In a very divided country. And and I'm just the same as you. I have my own personal opinions. (laughs) I have my own personal preferences. I've got my own ideas politically, socially, culturally. I've got those. But I'm going to tell you, every single person is made in the image of God. And every single person, whether I agree with them or not, whether I like them or not, and whether they are moving in the same direction I'm in or not, every single person is loved by God. And so therefore, I have no right to harbor animosity or hate now I tell you I struggle I struggle because I'm looking at a society and I'm looking at a culture and I'm looking at some young boys and I'm saying this is the kind of world they're going to grow up in and I don't like them being oppressed I don't like their freedoms being taken away I don't like the kind of direction this is headed in and boy if you get me started I can get in the flesh and I can start saying but you know that's not fair and that's not right and I can look at all those things but you know what God is able And God is able to do what God wants to do when God wants to do it. And it's this love. It's this love that comprehends. It's this love that understands. Paul says, I want you to kind of have the life. The life of the church. The life of an individual that not only is known by your power and the spirit. Not only known as your faith that follows Jesus no matter what. Not only known for the love that you have that comprehends the love that comprehends that what you are doing is more than just what you are doing the love that what you are doing is what God is doing in you I'm just simply reflect what God has done in me so he gets to this last one there in verse 20 He's talking about these traits, talking about these legacies to leave. And then he, he, he talks about the glory, the glory of God. He says, you want to leave a legacy? You want to live a legacy? You want to leave a legacy? Leave and live a legacy that points people to the glory of God. Notice he says in verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He's talking about the glory of God. He's talking about living the kind of life, leaving the kind of life that when people look at your life, they don't see the glory go to yourself. They don't see the glory go to the people around you. They don't see the glory go to your possessions or your vocation. They don't see the glory go to your family. They see the glory go to God. Glory in this church. When people come, they don't say, man, they've got an awesome Sunday school director. They don't come and they say, man, they've got an awesome worship leader. They don't come and they say, man, they got an awesome sound tech guy. They don't come and they say, man, I don't know about everybody else, but the person that does the bulletin, oh, man, they just do a wonderful job. But when they come to church, they see the glory of God. 
They see the glory of God proclaimed. They see the glory of God worshipped. They see the glory of God manifested. Manifested. They see people coming not for their own appearances, not for their own prestige, not for their own glory, but for the glory of God. God, can you imagine if we had the kind of heart and we kind of had the, we had the kind of attitude that it's not about us, it's about Him. I realize that we say, I realize that we say, oh, that's important, oh, that's what we want to do. But how much of our lives can be so often fixated and centered around what we get out of it? And yet, He says, what happens if when people come, all they do is see God's glory? All they do is see the glory of God flowing out of us. Not just glory in the church, but glory in the home. He says that there in verse 20, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. He is encouraging them. He's pleading with them. He's praying for them that the glory of God, not just is seen in the church, but the glory of God is seen in the home. I think I've said it to you before, but it's my opinion that the home today is the church tomorrow. And the things that are taking place in the home today will be reflective in the church tomorrow. So the state of the home today is the state of the church tomorrow. And that's frightening. That's frightening when you think about some of the values, you think about some of the morals, you think think about some of the habits, you think about some of the the practices that are taking place and being celebrated and glorified and, and promoted within the home and yet that will be the church tomorrow. So he says it's not just about you coming on a Sunday morning and putting on the face and putting on the part and putting on the show and saying here I am, I'm in my Christianese outfit. It's a matter of you saying God's gonna get glory in my home. Oh that's tougher. I mean, God's get glory on your Netflix. God gets glory in your Snapchat. God gets glory in your Facebook. God gets glory in your Amazon Prime. Your Apple TV, your Fire Stick. God gets glory with your web browsing history. God gets glory with the way you respond in anger. God gets glory with the thoughts and emotions that you share in your home. God gets glory everywhere. Now that's tough. That's tough because we all fail. And we all struggle. Now I get the luxury these days of working by myself most of the time. So I don't, my, my Christian witness is not always on the line when I'm, when I'm working by myself. I mean, I can, I, I can make fun of myself and like, you know, I'm not worried about my Christian testimony. I, I, I can be hard on myself, but you know, there was a point in time that I was working around guys all the time. And, and, and emotions come up and things come up and, and you make mistakes. I'm sitting there with a family at the house and we were trying to work on this and we were trying to work on that and there's things come up that I get impatient or, 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 or I lose my temper or, or things don't go my way and I lash out at people around me and, and that my family knows that I shouldn't do that. But you know what? Even in the mistakes, God can still get glory when you own the mistakes and you admit the mistakes and you work to correct the mistakes moving forward. God can still get glory in your home because God can get glory in your life. And God's 
glory in your life is not dependent upon necessarily your past. God's glory in your life can begin in the present. God's glory can begin in the present. And he wants you to know to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and amen. He's talking about the past. He's talking about the present. And he's talking about the future. And one of the wonderful things about the glory of God is that even if I or you made a mistake in the past and we didn't do what we should have done, that doesn't mean that we can't start doing what we ought to do today. It doesn't mean that we can't do it better tomorrow. It doesn't mean that we can't be more faithful tomorrow than we were yesterday. It can't mean that all is lost just because of our past sin or our past mistakes. But we can know that from this day forth, I can give God glory in my life, not because of my past, not because of my experiences, because of the love of God for me. You talk about freeing? To know that even if I make a mistake, even if I do something wrong, God can still get glory in my life. And old church, sometimes we start to think that we are defined by yesterday when we are also defined by today. We are not just defined by yesterday. We are defined by yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so yesterday may have been a fail. (laughs) But tomorrow doesn't have to be a fail. Every single year, Bedlam is on the calendar. And every single year, the hype begins. And every single year, they come to this game. And every single year, they act like it's a (laughs) toss-up. And every single year after the game is over, somebody's coaching future is going to be questioned. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens. Somebody's going to say, well, you know what? He keeps on making a mistake. He keeps on failing. And it's that kind of a legacy that is pinned on one single day, on one single moment. But praise be to God when Paul comes in here in this text, he reminds them that their legacy is based upon their relationship and their fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. It is not based upon man's opinions. It's not based upon man's whims. It's not based upon the pleasure of man, but it's based upon the love and the glory of God. So how do we know if we're growing in this? How how do we know if we're moving forward in this direction? I've got some things down here to just ways that we can measure our growth today. The first statement that I want to leave you with this morning is that our choices today determine our direction tomorrow. Choices today determine direction tomorrow. Choices today determine direction tomorrow. I have heard it said by other people. It's not something that is original with me. But Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. Because you have to determine that I'm going to do what it takes to be prepared and ready for Sunday morning. Because Sunday morning's going to come and you're going to have a thousand and one excuses why Sunday morning isn't going to happen. Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. And I'm going to tell you that faithfulness on Monday begins with a decision on Sunday. So, your choice today helps determine your direction tomorrow. And not just that, but I think we need to be reminded that our values today mold the generation tomorrow. Because the generation is looking at us. The generation is looking at the church. The generation is saying, what matters? What doesn't matter? What is responsible? Or what, what, what is the priorities? What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? Our values today mold the generation tomorrow. So they see a generation, uh, a generation let's say, of my generation that doesn't care, has disrespect, is rude. And we wonder why. Because they learn it from us. So when we as adults don't prioritize church, what do we think our children are going to do? When we as adults don't show respect and courtesy and honor, 
What do you think our children will do? I'll be around customers and I'll say, yes, sir. And they'll look at me and it's always, sometimes it's the military guys. Oh, don't call me, sir. I work for a living. Yeah, but I'm a dad and I'm raising children. And if I'm going to ask that son to say, yes, sir, no, sir. If I'm going to ask him to be courteous and respectful, then I need to be demonstrating and modeling that for him. And if that bothers you so much that I said, yes, sir, or no, sir, get over it. <laughs> in Jesus' name. <laughs> You know, we're living in such a day that even the adults today, that, that respect, that honor, that, that kind of deference, that, that, that kind of attitude has gone out of the window. Growing up, Marmy, you never called an adult by their first name. It was always Mr. So-and-so. They may, it may be Mr. Van, it may be Mr. Greg, but it was always Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. Always. And if you didn't, Mama would fix your face. <laughs> To make sure that it did from then that time forward. But we're living in a day when adults are acting like it's not that big of a deal. Who really cares? And I'm telling you, our values today mold the generation tomorrow. And then here's this last one. We'll be done. Whose glory are we living for? And that's the question. Whose glory are we living for? Are we living for my glory? Are we living for the glory of this church? Are we living for the glory of a party or a team or people, a name, or are we living for the glory of God? My prayer and my hope is with Paul that looking back to this season of life and to this time in history, that people would look back not just to First Baptist Wilson, but they look back to the people at First Baptist Wilson and say, you know what? I may not have always agreed with them. I may not have always liked them. They may not always done what, every, what everything or done the things that everybody thought they should have. But you know what? There is no denying that they were all about the glory of God. May that be true of us living forward. You bow your heads with me.